Hey folks, if you're dealing with sleep issues or stress, anxiety, dealing with pain management even, cutting down on inflammation, pretty much all the things I'm dealing with, I really encourage you to check out cocanacare.com. They make ultra-concentrated, terpene-rich CBD oil derived from all-natural, high-quality industrial hemp. It's legal in all 50 states. It's USDA certified 100% organic. It doesn't contain any heavy metals, no pesticides, nothing like that, and it doesn't contain THC. So if you've heard a lot about CBD but not know you know, a brand to trust to try it, I really encourage you to check them out. They're being gracious enough to support us during this time, so I'd love it if you went and supported them. You can find out more at cocanacare.com, and you can also find a link in the show notes. Almost without exception, people were dying for the story to be told because people, again, these were two beloved individuals in that community. And so people were really excited for their story to be told. And so everybody was willing to talk to me. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hey folks, happy Monday. Hope you're doing well. Man, it's been it's been a long couple weeks. We uh we ended up moving across the country. Great timing, right? And so the the last few weeks of episodes have been pre-uploaded. So this is the first time I'm recording anything uh from our new home essentially, and so our new studio. So I don't have an official like sound studio set up like I did in my old place. But uh, so I'm just, and it's also a construction zone here because so, we're ripping everything out. Just uh, kind of crazy getting used to all this, totally new everything, new climate, new area, new everything. And so, um, you know, essentially we big reason we moved here was to allow more adventure in our life in the long run. You know, we have a son, we're going to probably have more kids and we wanted to be near folks that could help us so that we could uh, get out there and adventure more. So it's kind of cool. You know, this show definitely inspired me to to make this move, and so it, it, so all this to say, if the the audio doesn't sound great right now, or I sound like I'm a little out of it, I'm a little rusty in front of the mic, <laughs> and also I don't have an official sound booth set up, so we'll get that going for now. Uh, the, the episode sounds good, and speaking of which, we're today we're talking kind of a unique story, Joanna Garten. We're not talking about. What she has done as much, we're talking more about, actually we are talking about what she's done through the process of writing a book about someone else. So uh, Christine Boscoff is the subject of her book, Edge of the Map, and it really follows this woman who is uh, the mo- one of the most accomplished mountaineers, w- women mountaineers of all time. She still holds the record, I believe, for the most 8,000 meter peaks climbed by a woman and uh, her and Joanna happened to be from the same town in Wisconsin, little town of Appleton, Wisconsin. And so uh, Joanna was very much intrigued by her story when she heard it and just got into it, realized it hasn't really been told. And so she decided to tell it because uh, Christine's life tragically ended on an, an Everest attempt in her pursuit to climb all the 8,000 meter peaks. I hope you enjoy. We're going to talk a little bit about Joanna's background in her first book and traveling to China and all that at first. And that, that 
takes a while, then we then we go through um, kind of our most recent project. But if you'd like to buy the book, Edge of the Map, it's definitely a page turner. Definitely recommend it. Uh, you can go to her website. It's in the show notes, and uh, it's joannagarten.com. You can also buy it in a number of the other places. But we do ask right now, you uh, support your local bookstore, your indie bookstore, help them out. Uh, we appreciate all the help we're getting through Patreon, through our sponsors. And so uh, we know a lot of folks are hurting right now. So please support those local, local businesses if you can. Um, but anyway, let's get on with the story. Hope you enjoy. And uh, yeah, if this, the audio is a little different right now, we're going to be fixing it. But uh, I wanted to get this out now and uh, enjoy. All right, folks, welcome to Adventure Sports Podcast. Again, we have an awesome guest on today. Uh, it, it kind of interesting concept for us. We're not talking about necessarily as much about her accomplishments, more about the book she wrote about someone else, but it's a very interesting story. And, uh, the book recently came out. It's been a few months, but, uh, yeah, Joanna Garden, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know we're coming from not too far from each other, which feels a little silly recording remotely, but <laughs> right. that is the state of the world we're in right now. Um, and we were just talking about what it's like to release a book right now and just, you know, the timing. Certain things have done well, like Netflix, you know, a series have, have done well during this time, but a, a book maybe not. I know podcasts have been all over the place. Could you just reflect on how you're feeling about the book so far? And then we can kind of dial it back from there and go back a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. It's interesting. Yeah, we just did talk about this before we came on. And I feel like I've been on sort of two parallel paths because I worked on the book for many years and I was obviously very excited to release it and still am very excited that it's out in the world. And the reception that I'm getting from the people who are getting their hands on the book is truly unbelievable. It really is resonating with people on many levels for many different reasons. People can find all sorts of fun places to get lost in the story so it's doing well. And every time I hear from a reader, I'm just super excited to hear what they've loved about it. So that part's been great. But the book released on April 1st, which was just when we were all sort of locking ourselves down. And so from that standpoint, it's been hard. You know, my whole book tour was canceled and all the libraries and all the bookstores all over the country have been closed. And my heart is just aching for all those millions of people who are out of work now. So, you know, barely able to afford food for many of them, much less books. So it's been kind of this two different paths that I've been on, elated, but also really kind of heartbreaking too, to be in the middle of this. And we all have our heartbreaks, as you know. Absolutely. And, and you know, speaking of that, the book itself and, you know, People have heard in the intro, you know, it's edge of the map and it's a story of Christine Boscoff. And um, do, do you think this particular story, what can people benefit from it? You're reading your book during this time. Is there any sort of particular inspiration or particular parallels going on with the world right now? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think that books like this are doing quite well relatively in this particular time because books about adventure and faraway travel and escaping 
and following your passions tend to do really well um, when we're all in a place where we kind of want to just get away for a little while. So from that standpoint, it's it's doing quite well. And also the message, I think, of perseverance and sticking with your dreams no matter what and how many walls you face and how many times you fail, which is really the underlying message of her story. I think that is really resonating with readers as well. I'm hearing that a lot. People saying, I started and I, I just couldn't stop and I got to the halfway point of the book and I stayed up all night and it was just such a great escape. I'm hearing the word escape a lot. So that's really quite mm. rewarding. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I know a lot of people are, keep, you know, like this show, we try to we're trying to stay exactly on schedule uh, just because it is an escape for folks. And it's not, you know, we don't want to ignore what's going on around us, but also people do need that kind of sense of normalcy going on just to kind of maintain that, you know, that, 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 um, just that encouragement to, to continue going. But you know, what's interesting, you, you, this, I am predicting a huge increase in adventures and, and, you know, people gravitating to, towards stories like this right now. And so in the next few years, I think we're just not going to have a problem at all finding guests because I've noticed so many of our guests in the past have come from, um, I decided to do my adventure. I decided to hike the Appalachian Trail or climb Denali uh, after 9-11 because I was out of a job. I was fired. You know, the, the economy was tanking or after the 2008 housing market crash. There's so many people that we have seen that that those kind of social and global tragedies have led to the, they have been the conduit for the change in their life. You know what I mean? And they happened to run across a book during that time that inspired them to, to do something they never thought or never had the ability to do beforehand. So I'm predicting that's going to happen right now too. Oh, I love that. That makes a lot of sense. I'm smiling big because that <laughs> I think is the case for so many people. And isn't it interesting that sometimes it does take something like a shift in the way that our world looks to um, resonate with people and make them mm. take that, take the reins in their own life. I think that's fantastic. You know, that I, I think it's just human nature. You know, how many people do we know that are passionate about a certain cause or, you know, a certain type of cancer or disease? They, they start a foundation because, you know, some enormous tragedy in their life, a child passed away or a parent or they went through a car accident. So they're passionate about, you know, preventing drunk driving or something. So there's, you know, you kind of almost have to go through something in order to be passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's been... The, the books on my shelf, I mean, so many of them, so many of those books are written because of a tragedy that, that kind of ignited the whole thing. And so I'm hoping and predicting that, you know, that that's going to happen here. And so um, that being said, we have definitely been pushing the message of, hey, guys, you know, if, if you are, if you've been dreaming about something, now is in a lot of ways your chance. You're being forced into change. You're being forced into thinking about things differently. Use it. And so, you know, that being said, don't be... If you can help others in a lesser position, do that, of course. But right now, so many people's perspectives are changing. But I'd love to go back. Um, you know, you grew up in the Midwest. And, you know, was adventure on your mind? Did you come from an adventurous family? What was that like? And how did you end up out, out West? Oh, gosh. Uh, yes. So I did. I came from Wisconsin. And I guess adventure was always on my mind in terms of traveling. I was fortunate to be able to travel quite a bit when I was young and kind of got that travel bug. I'm sure your listeners are very familiar and many of them probably have that also. 
So I caught that pretty early. And uh, after college, I went to college out at, uh, I went to Syracuse and studied journalism. And then after college, I moved to Asia and lived in Asia for a few years and traveled all over Southeast Asia and came back and went to law school, as many people do when they're not sure what they're <laughs> going to do with their life, right? Uh, I don't regret it, but it was um, it was an interesting time in my life. And while I was in law school, I began um, marathoning. I had run cross-country and track for Syracuse, and I continued running long distances through law school and started marathoning. So then sport and endurance athletics sort of became a part of my world at that point. And so eventually after law school, I ended up in Colorado, which we always say from Wisconsin, you kind of just drive west. And as soon as you hit mountains, you settle in. So there are a lot of people from Wisconsin who've found homes here in Colorado, I think. And uh, yeah, so just kept marathoning, practiced law for a little while, taught college, then moved my family to Asia for a couple of years. We lived in China for a few years, or a year or so, which was a crazy adventure. And uh, I came back from that and had been blogging while I was in China about that experience and came back and sort of turned the blogs into a book about what that year was like. And that was my first book. And I published it in 2015. And that eventually led to the second book, which is Edge of the Map. Wow. Awesome. Now, I, I'd love to ask, because I read that in a few places, you know, that you lived in China for a few years, and I didn't have the chance to check that book out. But could you just briefly say, like, why did you do that? Because I, what's interesting is you kind of just take this couple year chunk out of your life and, and do something totally different. I think that's a great thing that a lot of people could do without totally train changing their life from that point forward. You know what I'm saying? Like, Take a yeah. year or two of your life and do something very different. We definitely encourage that here too. Yes, yes. Oh, I do too. So, uh, you know, I had lived in, I had the travel bug and then I lived in Asia for those couple of years right after college and I lived in Taiwan, so learned how to speak Chinese and spent a lot of time in that part of the world. And when I left, I just thought I definitely have to come back here and live again with my family. So that was something that I always wanted to do and was very intent on doing. So having been over in China, this was sort of early to mid 90s. Um, that was when international adoption was opening up in China. And so I was very interested in creating a family by adoption. So my husband and I got married and we adopted two children from China. And uh, when our daughter was about four, that was just sort of the moment when we both decided, okay, so we're going to do this. And to be fair, that was sort of my idea. And I had to twist my husband's arm a little bit because it was totally out of his, out of his worldview to pick up your family and move to a communist country. Uh, but I was just really passionate about traveling and exposing my kids to the world. And I didn't think that you know, having a partner and quote unquote settling down and having kids meant that I needed to stop exploring the world. So we decided to move there and we did it. Yeah. My daughter was four and I think our son was nine. And so that was a very fascinating experience because we're obviously a bicultural family and they're Chinese and we're just, you know, boring old white Americans. And so we definitely Westerners. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So we like a sore thumb in this town that we lived in, in China. And it was, um, yeah, it was wild. 
Wow, that's too. I'm sure we could do a whole episode about that, honestly. But, <laughs> Just that. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. We've been joking lately because, you know, moving your family of four to China, where, I mean, I spoke a little Chinese and my son at that point, he'd been in a full immersion Mandarin school. So he spoke a little Chinese. So we kind of bumbled along. But for a lot of the year, it was really just the four of us kind of having our own little adventure cut off from everything that we normally practiced in the United States, soccer and choir practices and school functions and whatnot. That was all gone. And it was just the four of us having our own adventure and getting very close in the process. And so in some way, that has totally prepared us for where we are now, <laughs> staying at home and yeah. being around each other. So no kidding. from that standpoint, it's been great. You're used to that drastic change kind of all at once and culture shock and everything. Wow. That's uh yeah, I, I do think things like that do prepare you for times like this. That's one thing adventure teaches us is to how to deal with difficult times. And so, um, Gosh, you know, I didn't mean to dwell on this so long, but hey, that's what adventure <laughs> is. You know, you just kind of you kind of go different directions. Yeah. But so so when you get back, when when were you introduced to the story of Christine Boskoff? Did, was it something you always kind of knew about, or was it kind of all at once from one source? Where were you introduced? Well, this is a really wonderful part of the story. The backstory is really fascinating. And I don't talk about it in the book until the very end. But when I've been out on interviews talking to people about it, I I share it because I think it's um, a really compelling part of the story. So I as, I, as I mentioned, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm from a city called Appleton, Wisconsin. And Christine Boscoff was also from Appleton. So we were from the same hometown. She was three years older than me. We actually went to the same high school and we never met. We never met. We never crossed paths. We weren't in the same orbit at all. So we both kind of graduated and we both left Appleton and kind of went our own ways. She eventually ended up uh, in Telluride with her climbing partner, Charlie Fowler, right around the same time that I was settling in Denver and starting my family. But I'm not a mountaineer or a climber. So she was having this incredible trajectory in her climbing career. And it wasn't just, it just wasn't on my radar because that's not my sport. So I didn't know all the things she was accomplishing. And in 2006, she and Charlie went to Western Sichuan province and went missing. And that's kind of the last part of edge of the map, which I'm sure we'll get into, but they went missing and there was a little article in the newspaper in Appleton, Wisconsin, about Chris Boscoff, this incredible mountaineer, and she's gone missing, and she was this girl from Appleton. And my mother, who is a journalist, was reading the paper and read the article and was just taken by the story because she also didn't know anything about Chris. And Chris, part of Chris's beauty was that she was incredibly humble. So her accolades weren't really even well known in our hometown. So my mom had never heard of her. And kind of started digging into her story and realized what an accomplished mountaineer she was and all that she had done in her life and reached out to me and asked, have you heard about this, this woman? Her name is Chris Boscoff and she's gone missing and I had never heard of her. And so mom um, became fascinated by Chris's story and befriended Chris's mom, who was living just a couple of miles away in Appleton. And the two women became very good friends. And this was through the time that um, the search and rescue effort was trying to find 
Chris and Charlie eventually, both bodies were found and they had died in an avalanche. And by the time Chris was, Chris's remains were brought back to Appleton, my mom was very certain that this was worth telling. This was a story worth telling. And she wanted to write this book. So my mother began work on the book and worked on it for, oh, I don't know, eight, 10 years, something like that until about 2016 or so, she had been uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And at that point was really unable to continue working on the book. And this was right after I had published my first book. And by that point, I also was captivated by Chris's story. And I offered to help my mom finish the book. Wow. So, so your your mother was originally the one inspired by this book. And, and it, you, do you think that was primarily because here, here's this woman from the same town that I live in who is doing these things that you, you just never talk about maybe in Appleton, Wisconsin. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. how, how did the, how did her life lead to this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the altitude of <laughs> Appleton, Wisconsin, as I say in the book is something teeny tiny. And so mm-hmm. to have a woman from our hometown be, you know, one of, if not the most accomplished female American mountaineer of all times is pretty incredible. And the fact that we hadn't heard of her was even more astounding. So as my mom dug into her story and her background and realized that she really was just kind of the girl next door, just like my mother's own, you know, her own daughter, um, that was just really captivating for her. Why do you think the story wasn't told. Was it mostly out of her humility or, or cause I, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm from a small town in the South and you know, the people that are praised from my high school, for instance, are, are professional athletes. When I look at people that I've, that used to go to our school that have accomplished amazing things in other avenues, but it's just not appreciated in that area. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's part of the reason you think the story needed to be told? I think, Well, it's definitely part of the reason the story needed to be told. In terms of why she wasn't well-known, I think she was doing things that weren't being done by women in the late 90s. She was climbing in the late 90s, early 2000s. And at that point, mountaineering was in its heyday. At at that point, there were all these big expeditions to 8,000-meter peaks that were just exploding. And this was at the same time that a lot of men were attempting to climb all 14 of the world's 8,000 meter peaks. There are 14 of them. And this is kind of around the time of Into Thin Air and Ed Vister's making his attempt on all 14 8,000 meter peaks, which he eventually did. So I think the world was getting really introduced to the sport in that decade. And so people were tending to pay more attention to big names and people who were able to make a big splash. And at that time, and still, honestly, um, that was a lot of men. So people were paying attention to the men and the big stories. And Chris was just very, very humble and wanted to be under the radar. So that really added to the fact that people didn't know who she was. As you got into her story, did her humility frustrate you at all? Or did it give you the Um, opportunity to write the book? (laughs) It gave me, I think it gave me the opportunity to write the book, but it is quite funny because there are these interviews that I'll read at the time where she's very dismissive about the fact that, you know, she's just climbed Everest for the second time and she almost summited K2 and she's, 
you know, having conversations with people and they're, you know, she's out on a trail. She describes being out on a trail and people asking her what her job is. And she just says, well, I run a travel company, which she did. She was the only woman who was running a major guiding company, which is a big, big deal. But she was, um, yeah, it, it did drive me a teeny tiny bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You know, I will say as interviewing folks, I love when you interview someone and the longer you talk to them, the more you learn about them without, you know, everything they've done is not posted all over the internet. It's hard to find. And then it's almost like just continue. Every rock you turn over is a new story that that is incredible. And so mm-hmm. there is that fun kind of, you know, uh, 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 searching kind of treasure hunting aspect to it. I'm sure that the more you learned yes. about her, the more it's like, how was this woman not more celebrated during the time? Yes. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it's her way of life that led to those stories in the first place. So it, it's obviously working for her. So early on, she, um, I know she, she bought a mountaineering store. You said she was running a travel business. Could you, could you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about that and how she acquired that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get lost in all these rabbit holes. I love it. <laughs> right. I love it. So she, um, she graduated from our high school in Appleton and she studied aerospace engineering at university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And she moved to Atlanta and became an aerospace engineer at Lockheed for several years in Atlanta, which that in and of itself, this was, yeah, again, early nineties, I want to say, yeah, early to mid nineties. That was pretty astonishing at that time and and still is, I know. So she was an aerospace engineer for a few years in Atlanta and she was kind of getting bored of the day-to-day routine, if you can believe it. And so at one point she went to a climbing seminar at a local climbing gym and heard a lecture on mountain climbing and she totally fell for the sport of mountaineering and and climbing right there on the spot. The person who had been giving that lecture was a guy named Keith Boscoff, and he ended up um, being her mentor and eventually her husband. They fell in love, and the two of them climbed all over the world for a few years based in Atlanta. And then in 1996, as a lot of your um, listeners will remember, a lot of your listeners probably weren't even alive, but they know the story of Everest in 1996. There was a terrible disaster that was recounted later in the book Into Thin Air, which is written by John Cracker. I'm sure a lot of people have read Into Thin Air. Um, And I think nine people died in the mountain. And one of the guiding companies that had been on the mountain was a company called Mountain Madness. They're based out of Seattle. And their leader was uh, a guy named Scott Fisher, again, a very familiar name. He'd been Mm -hmm. a very accomplished mountaineer for many years, and he was running Mountain Madness and kind of, again, at this time when these big expeditions were booming. So Scott and Mountain Madness were on the mountain, and Scott died on the mountain in, in that year. This was May of 1996. So Scott, Keith, and Chris had crossed paths just one time the previous year in 1995, and they had talked a little bit about Mountain Madness. And so when Scott died, his company, Mountain Manus, went up for sale, and Keith and Chris bought his company. So they bought Mountain Madness. They moved from Atlanta out to Seattle and ran Mountain Madness, uh, and that is when Chris's trajectory just started going upwards, and she began climbing more and more 8,000-meter peaks. Wow. Do, do, do you think... 
that was almost because that, that's pretty powerful to to do what a gesture to do to to buy the company and to carry it on. Do you think there was that not pressure but that inspiration to carry on the tradition of of mountaineering and and to push the boundaries of mountaineering? I think that was part of it. I think for a lot of owners of guiding companies, running and owning a guiding company is kind of a means to an end. They're in that business because they love the sport, right? (laughs) And they want to find a way to support their lifestyle. I think that's something that you'd ask any guiding company owner and they would probably affirm. So that was definitely the case for Scott. And I think also very much the case for Keith and Chris. They wanted to keep climbing and owning the guiding company was definitely a way to do that. Absolutely. And so they're, they're acquiring the company was essentially because of a tragedy that obviously didn't cause them to not continue to mountaineer and to push the boundaries. Could you just tell us a little bit about what happened? When did, when did they go missing? What was the expedition and you know, how, how long after acquiring the company was it? And just what, what did that look like? What were the events that were unfolding? Mm -hmm. Yes. So to get there, I have to fast forward a little bit. So they bought the company, uh, in 1997, which is about, I think about 18 months after Scott died on Everest and, um, shortly after into thin air was published. So Keith and Chris ran the company, um, together for a while. And then I don't want to give too much away. Um, but Chris, Chris lost Keith. So she lost Keith and had to go on to be the sole owner of Mountain Madness. So she ran the company all by herself for many, many years. In about the year 2000, she began partnering with Charlie Fowler, who was this just unbelievable rock climber based in Norwood Telluride. And so she and Charlie began climbing together. Eventually they fell in love. And so that was in 2000-ish. 2001, 2002, and they began climbing all over the world and gravitating more towards unclimbed peaks. At this point, Chris had summited six of the world's 8,000 meter peaks, which at that point was an accomplishment that had not been achieved by any other American woman. And 20 years later, that's still the case. There's no other American woman who's climbed that many 8,000 meter peaks. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So she had kind of done that, and she was really on her way to summiting all 14 of them when she met Charlie, and they decided to just go a little more off the grid. That was more fulfilling at that point. They wanted to see places in the world that were really unexplored. And so that eventually led them on many expeditions to very far away places that were very remote. And so that is what sort of precipitated this decision to go to far western China in 2006. And from there... Um, the disappearance and yeah, yeah. It, I mean, yeah. were were you so so your mother kind of f- f- heard about the the article or saw the article where she was had disappeared? I, I don't believe they had been found at that point. So w- were you right. introduced to her story right, right then when when it was in the middle of the the search? Yes, wow. yes, I was. So this was Christmas two thousand six. They had disappeared. Well, they had been traveling September, October, November, and they had been scheduled to return to the United States December 4th, 2006. And when their plane arrived and they didn't, then people knew something was wrong. 
So at that point, a big search and rescue was initiated and it involved friends and family in both Telluride, where they had been living, and then also Seattle, which is where the company was based. Chris was sort of living part-time in both places. So Seattle and Telluride both launched search and rescue operations and coordinated with each other. They also obviously had to coordinate with officials in China. People knew that they had been in Western China, but there was no um, significant details. Chris and Charlie had not left significant details exactly where they were going. So there was, it was a lot of searching for a needle in a haystack, if you will. So the search and rescue went on for many years. Yeah, not not many years, many weeks. And at that point, yes, an article right around Christmas, that's when the article appeared in the Appleton paper and when I heard about it before their bodies had been found. So, you know, this is a story that we really know what's going to happen. You know, we we know that their their bodies are eventually found. But you also I've I've heard many places say that, you know, it's it's right at this point in the book that people can't put it down. What what can folks be without giving too much away, of course, what can Mm -hmm. folks be looking forward to about about this part of the book and, and why it's so riveting? It is. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've had a lot of people ask me that because you do sort of open the book knowing what the end is going to be. But when you get to about two thirds of the way through is when this starts happening. And it's just incredibly compelling. And I think a lot of it has to do with the people, the characters who are involved and the people who are involved at this point in kind of coordinating the search and rescue effort and how absolutely frantic it was and how much love was poured into it and how frustrating it was and how it involved all of this coordination and desperate searches and no sleep and many tears and passion that people had for these two individuals who were both really beloved in their communities. So I think that's what drives it forward. And at this point in the book, um, it really begins to sound like fiction But I think the reason people can't stop reading is because it's true. Every word of the book is true. And so this particular part of their story has not been told in any great depth. It was just this period where they were missing and then their bodies were found. And that was kind of the end of the story. So hearing all the details of how it unfolded and who was involved is pretty, pretty compelling. And I think that's what keeps people up at night at the end. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Truth is stranger than fiction a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting. Uh, so, so I know in preparation for the book, you and in, in writing the book, you talked to just all these mountaineers that were either involved or just had some connection with them. Uh, yeah, I mean, you talked to what nearly a hundred mountaineers and some hu- big names. Did did you, as a non climber, what what was it like talking to all these people? Did it just feel like you were talking to to aliens or did it, you know what I mean? Like what, did you just know what <laughs> yeah. to ask? Did you, what was it? Did you see some common thread between them? Just tell us what it was like learning from all these people. Yes. Well, first of all, it was really beautiful because almost without exception, people were dying for the story to be told. Absolutely dying because people, again, they, these were two beloved individuals in that community And so people were really excited for their story to be told. And so everybody was willing to talk to me, which was great. Uh, And I went into the project thinking, okay, so I'm not a mountaineer. I'm not a climber. So is that going to be a disadvantage? 
And I did a lot of um, poking around and read everything I could get my hands on, every other mountaineering book you can imagine. And I have to say at a certain point, and I've said this before, at a certain point after reading, you know, my 20th mountaineering book, they sort of started to sound the same to me. And I, at that point, realized it was because there was something out there that hadn't been written. And it was the book that I was planning to write. I wanted a book that had more humanity. And when I started looking at all the books I had read, I realized, oh my goodness, all of these books have been written by men, mostly white men. No offense to white men. I love white men. I'm married to a white man. (laughs) There's a lot of them out there. (laughs) There are a lot of them out there. I love you all. Hooray for white men. Um, But the mountaineering uh, genre needed more humanity. And I absolutely knew that this story could have that. So it ended up being an advantage that I was not a mountaineer because I was able to come to the table and meet with people who were very big names, but I didn't really know exactly who they were. So I wasn't at all intimidated. The ego that sometimes permeates the sport didn't really phase me at all. And again, they were all really gracious. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a really positive process. That that's very interesting. You say that it, it's sometimes you know if you don't know about a sport or a or, or a particular person within a sport, it can you can approach it in a way they're not a, either expecting or used to, which can draw so many new perspectives and stories. And mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously, as a journalist and as an author, I'm sure prepared just way beyond what I would ever prepared for. But, <laughs> but so you did have that familiarity, but not the, the, the maybe experience, but, um, you know, they were eager to tell the story. Like you said, what, what did you notice about mountaineers that might be different than the, maybe the rest of us that aren't, is there some sort of drive that you see maybe with high end athletes or with, with folks in business, or was there any sort of parallels or common thread between them all? Or did they all seem like their own their own type of person? Well, I mean, I think what was really inspiring for me was their passion for the mountains. And so, I mean, that wasn't necessarily a surprise, but I think I came to the project with that question that so many non-climbers have. And this is part of the reason I wrote the book too, because I felt like I wanted to write a book for armchair climbers. I didn't really want to write a book just for mountaineers. I wanted to write a book for everybody else, people like me, who gobble up all of these mountaineering narratives because they're so interesting and compelling and we can't wait to read the next one. That's just the nature of the sport, right? So, so I, yeah, I came to the project thinking I want to inject humanity and interest into this sport and help people understand why people climb. Because I had that question that everybody has who doesn't climb, which is like, well, why would these people put themselves in such incredible danger? Why would they do that? What drives them? So as I talked to more and more mountaineers, it became obvious that they're very much like the rest of us in that they have found their thing. And hopefully we all find our thing in life, whatever that may be. And it just so happens that their thing is a little more dangerous than the thing everybody else might have. You know, people are passionate about their children or parenting or music or gardening or spirituality. Yes. Stamps or whatever it may be like people are, people are lucky to find their thing in life and 
this particular group of individuals is just passionate about climbing and being in the mountains. And if they didn't do that, they wouldn't feel truly alive. And I, I got that. I got that by the end of the book. Interesting. So, so that's what, that's probably the biggest reason you think that non-climbers have gravitated to mountaineering books in general, but also to, to this book. I've heard you say that it's obviously, you know, being written by a woman and about a woman, it is, it is an attractive story to women and, and, uh, who are in, interested in this, but don't ever hear it from this perspective, just because like you said, so many of them are written from the perspective of a man. Do you think that's why it's been gravitating towards, towards non-climbers like this? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think it, there's definitely an audience for women because it's about a strong female athlete, but I wanted it to be a book that appealed across the board to both genders and especially to non-climbers. And I think that it definitely has because it, I wouldn't say that it dumbs down mountaineering, but it definitely explains the sport in a way that's understandable to the average person who doesn't practice that sport. So that's a good, that's a good selling point, uh, for sure. For sure. Mm, that's, uh, we definitely get that here on the show. There's a lot of people that listen that never aspire to sail around the world or, or bike across the a continent or something, but they listen and they reach out every once in a while and say, you know, I, I never do any of this stuff. I'm, I'm, you know, maybe I'm 75 years old or something, have no interest <laughs> in it, but I just love listening. And I always wonder why, because, because, you know, obviously you can't do all this because you have to kind of focus on a few things to be very, you know, to be any good at it. But mm -hmm. it is fascinating that the the common thread is just the inspiration is thinking out of the box is um, chasing a goal, you know, right. a very tangible goal. So yes. w what do you think Chris's legacy is moving forward? What can people and what have you maybe walked away from this experience learning from her? Oh gosh, such a great question. So I think <clears throat> I have learned to listen to myself a little bit more and to try to find the answers within and not outside, which is sometimes very hard to do. And it was hard <clears throat> for her to do at first in her life because she was from the Midwest and she was on kind of this very typical Pat, well, in some in some ways, most women from Appleton, Wisconsin, don't go on to be aerospace engineers at, <laughs> at Lockheed. But she was in kind of a nine to five grind at Lockheed, and she wasn't feeling it. She just wasn't feeling it. So she kept at it until she found this thing that was so incredibly outside the box for a girl from Appleton. But she loved it, and she stuck with it. And she didn't listen to people who criticized her. Obviously, she was a rarity in the sport being a woman. And she just she just didn't care. She just loved it so much. So she stuck with it. So I think that's her legacy, being able to find something you love, even if it takes quite a long time and looks totally different than what everybody else is doing. That's where you should be. Mm. Oh, man, that's that's right up our alley. And that's something, you know, that folks know, but it, I, you need to be reminded of. You need to see examples of. You need to see someone who's from Appleton, Wisconsin, become a mountaineer based in Atlanta. You know what I mean? Of all places. And then, you know what I mean? It's a long journey that happens over decades and decades, and there's steps to it. And there's 
there's persistence, so much persistence that's involved that mm-hmm. you just don't see when you see some woman out there climbing a crag and you start talking to her and she says, mm-hmm. I run a travel company, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> right. it's little does she know that right. her story will be told decades later. And so yes. this has had yeah. to be just such an incredible adventure for you as well. It has. It's been really, really fun and rewarding. And the fact that it was started by my mother and that I've been able to help oh, wow. help her finish it has been great. That's great. so amazing. So so can you tell, I know you mentioned it here and there a little bit, what, what has been the reception so far? Um, I know with, like you said, you released it at not a great time, but I'm sure Chris, Chris's story has, has, has helped you just to keep perspective and say, you know, this things happen for a reason and, and, you know, we can overcome this and we can keep going. What has been the reception? Yeah. It's funny. You know, (laughs) I talk to her from time to time and I'll say, Oh, Chris, I mean this, can you believe this has happened? Can you believe it? Here's this book and we've just released it into the pandemic and I'm so frustrated. What should I do? And I'll try to like, think about what she would say to me and how she would laugh and say, Joanna, you just got to stick with it. And if you believe in it, it'll work out. It'll work out. So I think it's just going to be a much slower, longer trajectory for the book. I think it's slowly catching fire. And I love that because everybody who gets their hands on the book, it's not just that they like it. They love it. They absolutely love it because there's really nothing else out there quite like it. The closest thing that's out there is really into thin air um, so, and that's a book people have loved mm-hmm. and now they've started mm-hmm. to compare it to Into Thin Air. So <clears throat> I'm super excited because the more people love it, the more they talk about it on social media, the more they, um, put reviews up on websites. And so I'm seeing more and more and more of that. And to the extent that now I've started to talk about selling the rights to film and TV, because it's very obvious when people close the book that it's could translate very well to a movie or to television. So that those are discussions that are starting to happen. And so that's exciting as well. Yeah, that is, that is very exciting. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure, like you said, Chris would just say, you know, there's so much that's out of your control. Just, just keep with it, stick with it. And you you never know, you might take a, a mountaineering class one day and totally change your life. Next thing you know, you're in Seattle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, right. That's right. awesome. So, so where can folks find the book? I know that you're going to have kind of an ever evolving uh, schedule with with your book tour right now. Like, mm-hmm. w- what is kind of a little bit more nailed down, and folks can kind of connect with you over. Yeah. Well, one good thing is that it's very easy to find me right now because I was supposed to be on a book tour all over the country, and I'm now, you know, in as as I say, I'm in my office. Um, kind of all day long, sort of doing my thing. So it's very easy to find me. So you can find the book on my website, which is joannagarton.com, J-O-H-A-N-N-A-G-A-R-T-O-N.com. And it's also available online at any of the online bookstores. You can imagine the biggie, you can get it there, as well as any of the smaller bookstores online. But I also really encourage people to buy the book from their local bookstore because local bookstores are really, really hurting right now. And so that's another place that you can um, that you can find the book as well. Fantastic. And yeah, I definitely encourage that as well. Use your indie bookstores, your local bookstores, uh, you know, I will plug all this so that folks can get it straight from you if they want to. And so, um, 
Wow. What a cool story. Yeah. And this yeah, is, it's know, a great story. Oh, man, this is so exciting. And it's a great story for book clubs, too. I should mention that, mm. too. Um, I'm talking to tons of book clubs right now and doing all sorts of virtual events. And it's actually really fun because book clubs, I think, very rarely have the chance to interact with authors at the end of their reading. And I'm doing that now. And it's that's a fabulous way to kind of connect with me and with the story as well. I tell all the secrets behind the writing of the book, which oh. people are loving. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's fantastic. Wow. So there is yeah. some unique opportunities right now that, there that are, didn't exist there are. before. So that's a great totally. thing to be looking forward to. Um, yep. Anything else you'd like to share before we wrapped up? Um, gosh, if you read the book and you like the book, send me a message. That will make my day. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> it is awesome getting yes. feedback. Yes. Uh, and yeah. And find your thing. Everybody just keep looking and find your thing, even if it takes quite a long time. Oh, gosh. Get out. That's what we always say at the end of every episode. Get out there, have some fun. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, keep keep moving forward down this down this trail called life. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joanna, well, thank you so much for joining us. This is awesome. And I, I really appreciate you just kind of, you know, g going into some stories. And, you know, I hope I, we didn't overshare anything. I didn't want to ruin, you know, anything in the book. <laughs> no. but it, it was very fascinating, and I'm I'm very excited to continue in the book. I'm 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 getting close to that two thirds mark, so I'm excited. Great, thanks, All right, thank you. All right, bye. Bye bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes. Share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast link is in the show notes and also if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure so if you know someone please reach out email us at info at adventure sports and until then get out there and have some fun <laughs>